If I um, succeed, I guess, in this series in doing one thing and one thing only, it would be to encourage you to pick up a particular book uh, alongside of the scriptures as your summer reading material. If you have never read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, I want to highly commend this for your reading this summer. It is 128 pages long. It is a story. It is the journey of an individual on a bus to the afterlife. And it is one of the most um, theologically rich and helpful books on the subject of the afterlife that I've ever read. I've had this on my bookshelf for years. I guess I read it way back when I started my Christian journey. I picked it up again, and over the last two weeks, I've read it again. And I just, I really wish I had just given this all to you at the start of the series and said, just spend your time reading this in worship when we get get together because there's just such helpful insight in this book. So I just want to highly uh, commend this book for your uh, reading. You know, another book has come out in recent days that has generated a great deal of, uh, of controversy and discussion around the subject of the afterlife. Uh, the book is by uh, Rob Bell, a pastor up in uh, the Grand Rapids area of Michigan, uh, a man who has been a, a key voice within the younger evangelical community for many, many years. And Bell's book has stirred an immense amount of furor. It's made the cover of Time magazine. Uh, it has raised a lot of, uh, of feeling within the community because uh, he is grappling with this question of, uh, that maybe is, has been one of the most difficult, perplexing, challenging, dividing questions in the course of Christianity. One of the toughest questions that Christians have faced through the centuries. And that is, how could a loving God the kind of God Jesus reveals to us, really send anyone to an eternal hell? This is a question that is not just asked by outsiders to the Christian faith. It is a question that is held in the hearts of many people who sit in pews every single week. Though they may not share that with their neighbor, I know it's true because I hear them expressing it to me and to other pastors. And the reason that they ask the question is because of this apparently conflictual stream of testimony that they have found in the scriptures themselves. On the one hand, we have Jesus portraying God as this extraordinarily loving being. In fact, this radically loving uh, being as Jesus describes his heavenly father. Uh, This being will go to stunning lengths to reach people, right? Right? Uh, He is just relentless in his pursuit of human beings. He will work to recover lost sheep, and he'll scrounge down underneath the bed and the lint balls to get the lost coin. He'll, He'll wait at the gate longing for the recovery of the lost child, the lost son. This vision Jesus gives us of the Heavenly Father is no different, really, than the character of the Heavenly Father we meet all the way through the storyline of the Old Testament as God pursues Uh, the nation of Israel. Jesus actually says that in the same way as all these stories I've been telling you, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. The desire of your Father is that everybody be found. 
is the consistent message of, of Jesus. And then, just a very few chapters later, in the same Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us that God will one day say to certain people, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Come to me, says the heavenly Father. Depart from me into hell says that same father. How do we bring these two ideas together? How do we reconcile this apparently conflictual stream? How can he be both a loving father and a damning judge? How can God pursue people all of their days upon the earth and then snap, turn on them one second after they die and give up on them entirely. How can this be so? Not everybody is actually disturbed by that. It needs to be recognized. Some people actually take certain perverse pleasure in the idea that some people who have not come around to believing or doing what they believe or do will be damned in the end. There are some people that, honestly speaking, actually live their lives with a certain sense of comfort at the thought that having done right themselves, people who didn't do it the way they did it are going to hell. Some of those people actually attend churches. Some of them don't. Some of them live outside of the church entirely. But it's not only prideful people, it's not only vindictive people that find some comfort in the thought of an ultimate accounting for choices made in this world. I know that uh, Miroslav Volf is a name some of you know. He's a uh, theologian at Yale University, formerly a professor at Fuller Seminary. Uh, a profoundly thoughtful Christian man who used to reject the concept of a wrathful judging God. He thought it seemed brutal. It seemed beneath the dignity of the God that he knew. Until he saw the wartime atrocities in his native Croatia, and until he saw the horror of some 800,000 Rwandans hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage, Wolf asks? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them, Wolf inquires? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think, he writes, that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Rob Bell asserts this idea too. He says, in the face of mass murder and child rape 
and the ravage of the weak by the powerful, who of us with any moral sensibility doesn't crave a day when a supreme authority says, enough then, enough now. For the earth to be free of anything destructive or damaging, certain things have to be banished, writes Bell. Decisions have to be made. Judgments have to be rendered. And this is part of what a hell is for. It's an intentional separation so that that which is left behind can thrive, can be heaven in in the sense for which we long for a place of peace and hope and redemption and love. I I don't think it's this idea that Bell and, and Wolf are advancing that we find so hard to reconcile with our understanding of God, is it? Most of us are not excessively troubled. Maybe we feel a little bit of conflict over it, but most of us are not excessively troubled by the idea that bin Laden is going to hell. That Hitler is in hell, right? Most of us aren't tormented by that thought. Some of us deeply comforted by that thought. The problem is all of those apparently good people that we know. That's the struggle that most of us have around this topic, I think. What about that kind person in our workplace or who goes to our school or who lives in our neighborhood who happens to practice a different religion and they just were enculturated in that religion ever since they grew up? What about that person? Where does that person go? And how about the ones who got so wounded by a past experience with religion or maybe with life itself that they just turned their back on the God of the Bible? How about them? What's going to become of them? What about those family members and friends who have never really bought into following Jesus? I mean, they've been close sometimes. It's not like they're actively hostile to it. They just don't show up. They don't come with us to church. They don't uh, attend a church where they live. They just have not really gotten there yet. Some of our own kids maybe are like this. And what about the person who died before they really ever even got a chance to understand Christ's call? What about that person? Are they going to hell? Throughout the centuries, conscientious Christians, honest Christians have wrestled with these very important questions. They've struggled to understand how God would, in a loving and just way, deal with such persons. They've tried to connect the dots of the biblical testimony in such a way as to resolve, if that's possible, the problem of hell in a way that brings together God's love and, his God, and God's justice And so I want this morning to try and briefly sketch for you how Christians have sought to do this over time. And and then to try and articulate for you where I personally come down on this subject and provide you with some handles for perhaps how you can resolve these questions yourself. One approach to these matters has been the doctrine that has come to be called universalism. Universalism. Christian universalists point to passages like these ones where the Apostle Paul says stuff like this. And God made known to us the mystery of his will, 
which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things together under one head, even Christ. And that all things phrase is the, is the one that people hold on to in, under, in looking at, at, at the doctrine of universalism. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, another passage says, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. For as in Adam all die, writes Paul, so in Christ all will be made alive. The basic idea here is that the blood of Christ shed upon the cross covers everybody. In other words, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He was giving forgiveness to everyone. even to his enemies, even to those who turned away from him, even those who actively rejected him. Christian universalists believe that in the end, God will overcome all evil and make everything new. God may even save Satan himself. Christian universalists hold. It's a very attractive idea in some respects. Except that it, it appears to run contrary to what Jesus says and what other passages in the writings of the apostles express. Jesus says that there are some persons and some sins that are not actually forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, says Jesus in Matthew 12, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who denies and presses away the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age where we're living now or in the age to come in the afterlife. In his revelation to St. John, Jesus says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The weight of the biblical evidence, at least as I've looked at it myself, suggests that while God's love is enormously expansive, God's justice requires accountability for those who have set their hearts against him. And if I could erase the testimony, I might like to. But there are ultimate consequences to turning our back against him and against the life of his kingdom and his holiness and justice require this. Another proposed solution to the problem of hell goes by the term annihilationism. Annihilationism. Proponents of this theory point to Christ's warning, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, 
be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the thinking here is that while God won't save those who have not opened their heart up to him, he's too loving to subject them to conscious torment. God resurrects everyone at the time of, the, of judgment, on the day of judgment. We die, an unspecified period of time passes by, there is a day of judgment in which all are raised and stand before him, and at that time, those he determines not to bring to heaven with him are thrown into the fire, so to speak. They're completely consumed. They're annihilated. The difficulty with this particular theory is that it isn't consistent with other testimony in the scriptures. When it's used elsewhere in the Bible, the word for destroy that is used in Jesus' statement quoted by annihilationists, never refers to annihilation. That word is never used in relationship to extinction. Uh, it, is, it always refers to a continuing state of decay. In his famous parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life, and in both cases, the word eternal refers to an ongoing condition. Numerous other passages in the book of Daniel, for example, and the book of Revelation make it very clear that the consequence of turning away from God is not the peace of extinction, but the struggle of living without God. Uh, the undesirable struggle of living without God. The third approach to the hot question of God's love and the reality of hell is what Rob Bell is articulating in this new book, okay? It's a very old way of looking at it. It's not particularly new. Lots of people within Christianity through the years have played with this idea or gone to this idea. But it is, it's a view I will call here purgative libertarianism. You might want to write that one down in case it's on the SAT. <laughs> Purgative libertarianism. In a nutshell, it is, it is the somewhat counterintuitive idea that God saves some people by sending them to hell. He saves them through hell is, is the idea here. In doing this, God's motive is never to destroy people. It's always to transform people. God allows people to experience the full consequences of choosing their own way in the afterlife. You know, C.S. Lewis says that in the end, that there are two choices we make. We've got to go one way or the other. We either say, thy will be done, or God says to us, your will be done. And purgative libertarianism holds that God allows the, us to make those choices in order to purge us of the ignorance or the hard-heartedness that may have kept us from him in this life. It, it, it's there in hell, actually, uh, according to this theory, that, that some of those faithful servants of other religions, those, 
those generous-hearted agnostic people, those well-meaning atheist folks, uh, may actually finally come to terms with the horror of the choice they made to, to abandon God, their creator. And in that existence, turn towards him and be saved. What makes this particular belief very different than universalism is, is not only its conviction that there, there is a hell, an active place of torment, but also its conviction that not everybody actually finally escapes that place. In other words, some people go to it, some people never get out of it. Prerogative libertarianism holds. Because like Satan, some people are libertarians to a fatal fault. Their desire for their choice, their way, is, is such a motive reality for them, they can never break out of it. They're unwilling to have anybody else but themselves be God. The original lie of the garden, thou shalt be as God. They refuse to depend upon God's grace for their salvation they don't extend that grace uh, to other people. As C.S. Lewis says, for them, the door to hell is locked on the inside, from the inside. And that's where they spend eternity, imprisoned in themselves. You get some spectacular images of that in, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Can you see why the purgative libertarian approach is appealing? I mean, you're probably too shy to raise your hand, but can you see it? Can you see why there, there are many who find this attractive? It's, it, it seems to uphold both God's justice and his love, at least from a human viewpoint. It lines up with what seems to be the very long-term, tough love approach that God takes with people all across the biblical storyline. For example, God doesn't smite Adam and Eve. I mean, they violate his law so profoundly. God doesn't just smash them and destroy them and torment them. He, he sends them out of Eden. And living then east of Eden, as the poets have said, they, they, they live a life that, that makes them realize how horrible the choice was and can result in their turning back towards God. God doesn't give up on the golden calf worshiping uh, folks that run from Egypt at the Exodus. He just lengthens their time in the wilderness until they turn back to him and he can lead them into the promised land. When the nation of Israel continues to prove faithless, chasing after other gods, God sends them where? Into painful exile. Why? to bring them home again, to turn them back towards him again. And so Bell asks, could hell be part of God's redemptive discipline? I... I would like to think so, but I'm just not sure of it, to be honest with you. 
And as attractive as the notion is, I want to share with you why I still find myself putting my feet down in that way of understanding these things that has been called classic evangelicalism. I remember C.S. Lewis saying one time that um, when he was an, an atheist, he had these profound moments of doubt. <laughs> what if I'm wrong? <laughs> and there's a God. <laughs> and my response to him is everything in this life. And he said that when he became a, a Christian, he still had these moments of doubt. What if I'm wrong? And he decided he, but he had to put his feet down someplace on the preponderance of the evidence and live from that particular place. And this is where I come down. This is where I've chosen to put my feet down in, in understanding the doctrine of, of, of hell. Uh, and, and this doctrine, I should say, is different than the others in that it places its emphasis on the necessity of responding to God's saving grace now. Okay? Not waiting till after death, but responding to it now. In the parable we studied last week, Jesus himself says that between heaven and hell, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here, meaning heaven, to there, or from here to there, cannot, nor can anyone cross over from hell to heaven. Okay? The clear message of Jesus in that parable is. You're not going to go to hell and then go to heaven in that text. Again and again, Jesus expresses this urgency about responding to his call, uh, about choosing the way of the kingdom. And he speaks about this. It's hard to read the Gospels in a serial way and not be impressed by this. He speaks as if there was, that time was running out and that there wouldn't be these endless chances to cross over into the kingdom's uh, character and experience, the kingdom life. Jesus came at a time in history, I should add this, it's really important, he came at a time in history when there was tremendous religious pluralism. Okay? There, was, there, was a, there are many religions. We, we see this in the testimony in the, in the book of Acts about Pente the day of Pentecost. You know, Edomites and Phrygians and Cappadocians. All these different kinds of traditions uh, and, and all the religions of that were being bubbled up and cross-pollinated because of the work of the Roman Empire. Jesus could so easily, in the midst of that cultural milieu, have told us that there were many routes to heaven, not to sweat the distinctions so heavily. He could have done this. But Jesus said instead, no one comes to the Father except through me. And the apostles underline the same. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name, meaning authority, under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. It seems to me that, the underlying, that underlying the question about how to reconcile our notion of a loving God is a far, uh, loving God and this justice that is implied by hell is a far hotter question. In other words, as hot as that, the big one about hell is, underneath it 
is a much, much hotter question that few people, I think, are voicing aloud today or are facing up to today. And the question that I think you and I and everybody else in this very individualistic age that we live in have to reckon with first is, am I willing to have a God at all? Am I really willing that there be a God at all? Am I willing to accept that there is a God who, by definition, is free to do as he chooses on eternal matters? Am I willing to accept his right to do that? Or will I only bow to my idea of what a God should be and do? This is not a question that's an academic question. This is not a question that I'm trying to just kind of twist into you. This is the question I've had to ask myself every day of my life. Am I willing to have a God who does not conform to my idea of his job description? You see, being God, actually God, entitles him to do as he deems loving, as he defines love, as he defines justice, as he defines holiness. It it entitles him to do those things which he perceives to be furthering of his purposes, whether I grasp the wisdom and the righteousness of this or not. I don't like the idea, but I have to grant that if there's God, that's by definition the reality. And if it turns out that it's God's will that I spend eternity in hell, that is within his rights. My hating his will will not cease to make him God, nor will I or others be better off by turning against him. And conversely, being God, it is also within his rights to save me and to save other people, not on the basis of our good deeds, not on the basis of our wisdom and right thinking, not on the basis of our religious orientation, but on the basis of his grace, which is exactly the invitation that he extends to us in Jesus. If this grace turns out to be even wider than I think right now based on what I see in the scriptures. If God chooses to cross over the chasm, which according to the parable is fixed, if God chooses once again, as he's done once before, to descend into hell and to bring forth a treasure, if God chooses to somehow still redeem those who missed his way, who missed the truth, who missed the life he so generously offered here, if he chooses to do this even after death, that would also be his right to do. 
and I'm going to confess this to you, I would be glad for it. I would be glad for it. But in the meantime, I am going to follow Jesus because he shows me the way. And I believe he shows all of us the way. I will preach Christ crucified for our salvation. I will invite as many people as I can to respond to the invitation he offers here and now and to come into the life of that kingdom and into the circle of his family now. And I pray that you will do likewise. Would you bow your heads with me? Our gracious God, we, we really do struggle <laughs> to let you be God. And as we confront the, the magnificence of your love and the necessity of your holy justice, We leave unto you those things which we have no power to decide. And we take hold of those things which we know we must choose, make choices about. And so, Lord, if there are any of us, even in the circle this morning, who have not responded to your loving, gracious invitation to a relationship with you, Lord, hear the prayer of that ready heart saying, Jesus, forgive my sins. Draw me to yourself. Lead me in the way of your kingdom. And if there is anyone with whom we need to deepen our relationship so that we may in love invite them to come and know you, and receive your grace. Lord, then spark us and spur us to go forth into all the world and make disciples. And trusting you, Lord, for the hereafter, we ask for the power to live by your Spirit and make use of this golden, glorious opportunity that is the now. And so we offer ourselves afresh to you today for your use and purposes, in the name of Jesus. Amen.